Hi everyone, Lucas Werner here. If you've been enjoying these conversations about art and culture, you might want to check out the newest releases from David's Werner Books, where we've published award-winning titles on Diane Arbus, Yayoi Kusama, and Carrie James Marshall, in addition to Ekphrasis, the critically acclaimed series of texts on art. This season, look out for books from the likes of Catherine Bernhard, Noah Davis, and Marcel Zama, as well as new additions to the beloved Ekphrasis series. Visit davidswernerbooks.com to learn more. I'm Naylan Blake, and I'm an artist, educator, and hopefully agitator. From David Zwerner, this is Dialogues, a podcast about artists and the way they think. And to me, I feel like artists are often the best writers about other artists, and they should hone that skill. I'm Lucas Werner. This season of Dialogues, we're inviting on new hosts for certain episodes so we can expand not only the diversity of our guests, but also of the subjects we tackle on the podcast. This episode, the curator and writer Jarrett Ernest, an old friend and great collaborator, kicks off a three-part miniseries on a subject he has always been deeply interested in, serious artists who are also serious writers. I'm Jarrett Ernest, your guest host for this episode. I'm talking with Naylan Blake, who shaped the discourse on art and queerness through decades of intertwined activity as an artist, curator, educator, and critic. Our many talks over the years have shaped my own understandings of queer art and its histories, especially as I was curating the exhibition Ray Johnson, What a Dump at David Zwerner, New York. Nayland Blake is known for their visual art, as seen in the recent 30-year retrospective, No Wrong Holes. For this conversation, we focus on their criticism, including their pieces on Ray Johnson, to examine the role that writing plays in their overall work. So a little bit of, of the way I wanted to approach this conversation, if, if it appeals to you, is reading, I kind of read through everything sequentially, which was mm-hmm. really interesting. And so I wanted to do a little bit like Nayland Blake, This Is Your Life, writing edition. And sure. Uh, so I guess in that sense, the, the way to start would be to talk about the piece you wrote on Tom of Finland in 1988 for Outlook magazine, which even today like remains kind of central in like the discourse of Tom of Finland. Sure. I, as I remember it, there were two things that sort of collided at that point in my life. I was living in San Francisco. Well, I was seeing the writer Bob Gluck and, and his downstairs tenants in his house were a couple who were both involved in Outlook magazine. They'd been involved with publishing Socialist Review, but then had had pivoted to being part of the collective, as I understand it, that was publishing Outlook magazine. They sort of approached me about the idea of writing about Tom of Finland. And I mean, for people who don't know Outlook, Outlook was a really kind of interesting and pioneering culture magazine that had a kind of limited run, but 
but had a really, I think, interesting and and generally kind of leftist take on on gay and lesbian and queer culture. And then somehow, one way or another, I can't remember if this was through Outlook or not, but but it 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 the possibility of interviewing Tom was was there and and organized by Dirk Daner, who was setting up the Tom of Finland Foundation at that point. I don't think it had fully been established yet, but Dirk was working to kind of help Tom get his business affairs in order and his his publishing rights were a big mess. And so there, on one hand, there was this desire from people who were supporting Tom to actually get him on a more secure footing and to in some ways to secure his legacy. And then there was these arty lefty publishers who had this idea and they, and they approached me about doing it. And I, I really loved it in part because it, Tom was such a difficult figure to kind of grapple with. And particularly at that time, and so the fact that I got to interview him and then also that that the that the format was such that you know I didn't have a, an editorial mandate for it to just be a puff piece it could really fall in a bunch of different ways and I think that that was that was also really um freeing at the time Well it's so fascinating as as what we could identify as like a first serious piece of writing for you because it coalesces so many of your later interests that radiate. And I guess I would want to understand a little more closely like what it meant for you having been involved in the kind of art education that you had up until that point to, you know, take on Tom of Finland as such a resolutely like not art figure, but to deal mm-hmm. seriously with these visual, these drawings, you know, the, these now pretty well integrated into like an art understanding drawings, but to like take that on in all of its different facets, you do it as pornography, you do it as storytelling, you do it through the lens of fascism, you do it through uh, sensuality. Um, So I I think it's probably hard for people right now to understand exactly the move that that represented for you at that time. So could you open that up a bit? I've always been frustrated in situations where the art world says that it 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 wants to deal with an issue and yet doesn't look at the people who are actually dealing with it there are things in tom's drawings that are so specifically of their time and important to kind of think about but certainly the way that i was you know raised in relationship to an art world discourse like you just wouldn't ever sort of talk about representational drawings as potentially being anything other than kind of retrograde and and inherently conservative in their form you know but i had bought tom's bootleg at that point compilations of drawings at porn stores in new york and san francisco and loved them and thought they were hot and also was a little distressed by them. And, and, and I knew that my relationship to them was emotionally complex. 
And I think that the best writing about art is comes out of people attempting to to articulate the complexity of their relationship to to a work of art. I think also the thing that's important, and this is this is why I think about like Outlook and and why it was so necessary at the time is that it was attempting to articulate new types of canons within queer culture to you know have a broader look at what might be possible for people to think about seriously as culture at a point where there was a kind of the beginnings of a kind of domesticized gay model of culture so part of that that work of i think that all artists should engage in is creating your forebears creating the lineage that you want to step into well it is this great inauguration of something that is so powerful reading through your work o- over many years together for basically you know where they have never appeared before is this this attempt this very serious wrestling with drawing out a kind of counter narrative or like a different lineage within which your own work could be situated and so one of the points you make in the piece about Tom of Finland is to say that he isn't resuscitatable as respectable in the master narratives of the art world you know it's not like look George Platlines is just as good as any other photographer. He just happens to be taking pictures of dicks. It's like actually this is not it's not recuperable on those on those terms right. that culture has has set out, which means that it's like a different culture. And mm-hmm. you're really I think the people that you write about whether it's Jack Smith or Ray Johnson or Kathy Acker are all so deeply invested in that kind of alternate way of of being as an artist. Yeah, I mean I think that the the desire for respectability is is deadening and it's deadening in in all marginalized communities and it's the sort of carrot that mainstream culture always offers. You know, you can you can have this as long as these sort of difficult parts are shorn off. You know, that as long as you leave XYZ behind. And I and I I think in some ways in my work all the way through i've been you know i don't i don't want to say that sex is okay in art as long as it is sensuality it's like no when when we have sex we are making a kind of meaning and let's talk about the different ways in which we do that and and what types of meaning are possible through sex and to take pornography seriously as a species of meaning and that only works if you don't pretend that it is something else in terms of your own trajectory i mean you're educated undergrad at bard and then you go to cal arts at like the height of the theory heavy very a lot of very interesting work and people coming out of it but instead of going from there back to New York which is the trajectory of someone who is uh, i guess chasing the carrot of respectability you moved to San Francisco and then started writing this writing 
practice as part of your work, which starts with Tom of Finland and then evolves into like a porn review column in the Bay Area Reporter. And I'm wondering, mm-hmm. like, how did it appear to you at that time that you were like specifically rejecting a certain way of of being an artist or engaging with the art world? Or was there just an inevitability that you wanted to move to San Francisco? I felt really clearly when I graduated from CalArts that I needed some time where I didn't know what my work was about and what I was doing. And I felt very strongly at the time that both New York and Los Angeles were places where that would be scrutinized. And the thing that that was really lovely about San Francisco at that time in the, in, in the early to mid eighties is that it was a, a place where you could go and make yourself up like, like reinvent yourself. And it didn't have a kind of, uh, glare of attention from the places that thought of themselves as the art center. It was possible to go there and mess around and it wouldn't really matter so much. You know, it was also the queer capital of the world. And that felt important to me. I still could not, there still was not a clear articulation of what queerness meant in relationship to art It while I was at CalArts. There were plenty of interesting queer artists there, but nobody had a sense of how to actually begin to talk about what that might mean in terms of what the work would look like. And so getting to the Bay Area was an introduction to a whole other set of histories and and a whole other set of side gigs. I mean, that's the, the thing that was really lovely was doing those columns for the Bay Area Reporter, like came up as a weird sort of side gig but the person who had written those columns before was john carr who is also a writer i think a poet and was take you know took it really seriously and it was a super fun gig to do so i just wanted to i want to talk about the porn columns because i had so much fun reading them actually and I want to read some parts of them back to you, but there was rereading the Tom of Finland piece with the knowledge that the next mode of your writing goes into is these kind of porn reviews. This moment stands out to me where, where you're basically setting up like why a serious discussion of Tom of Finland. And you say Tom's work has been left on the sidelines of any debate about gay sensibility because it's pornography. Pornography remains a taboo. We consume it, but will not commit to it. Yet, when the history of gay images and representations is written, it will contain a large section on our pornographers. In a milieu that has produced a new connoisseurship of sexual acts, what we arouse ourselves with speaks eloquently about who we are. When I read that, I was like, oh, no wonder you then wrote a porn column, right? <laughs> but And the, the porn that you review is really funny and, and interesting and it... it and it's often like compilations of like amateurs or like a show mm-hmm. of porn bloopers. And then one of them that's just kind of like hot guys fucking like concludes in this way, I think is really funny. So 
I want to read it to you, but it's like a, it's called Summertime Blues, and you describe it as being like the story of like young, hot white guys like going to a beach and fucking each other and like being realizing like they didn't have to worry that everyone around them was like as stupid as they were. <laughs> so then you get to the point after you to describe all of this and you say, oh, so what's the beef? Okay, what's wrong with this picture? All of the settings are fine and the sound isn't horrible. None of the guys are absolute dogs and no one seems creepy or anything. So what's my beef? It's simply that this film is mind-numbing, jaw-droppingly, hard-on-softening product. The whole thing is so rote that watching it feels more like work than anything else. I have to point out one thing in particular. One of the two neighbors is played by Matt Hammer, and he exhibits one of the most obnoxious tics in porn. For practically the entire time he is on screen, he keeps a running monologue that goes something like, eat that big dick. You want that big dick. Don't you want it? And it it goes on for a paragraph. And then you say, (laughs) that's supposed to be hot talk. And to give Matt credit, his dick is big. Although, and we can say this all together, girls, we've seen bigger. But after 12 minutes of hearing it, I was far from aroused. In fact, I felt like I had stumbled onto the set of Philip Glass's latest opus. As Matt neared the climax he had been telling us about for five minutes, the camera began a bizarre zoom toward the stack of books in the background. The only readable title was Native American Architecture. Was this subliminal hint that I should be pitching a tent? Distressed, I put out my other tape or something. So I love this kind of like little portrait of like you writing a porn review because it's like you 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 realize like, okay, you're with this person who has like, is obviously interested in porn and sex and wants to get off and is just like, but is really smart and funny. Who's like, okay, so Mm -hmm. now I'm thinking of the, like, look at my big dick monologue as being like a Philip Glass piece. And then like you do the thing at the end of the, of the, of the piece where it's like the camera zooming into the bookshelf in the background. And like that to Mm -hmm. me almost is like indicative of like the move that you often make, which it's like, what is, What's being transmitted here in the background that is not what you're supposed to be paying attention to, but is actually like carrying the meaning of this particular situation in ways that it's like only partially conscious of? Mm hmm. Well, it's, I mean, one of the things about writing those columns is that the tricky part was that it was the only column in the paper that the act that the publisher of the paper really cared about. (laughs) (laughs) And, and so I didn't get to pick any of the porn that I reviewed. Like I would go into the office and there would be a stack of tapes to, to review. And I think it was because of course those were the advertisers. Right. So, so it quickly, there were quickly situations where it was not as hot as you might expect. (laughs) to do that but it's also i mean i'm just sort of reminded just today i was kind of going through a bunch of papers trying to find something and and as as always the case these days i didn't find what i was looking for but i found something else interesting which is that when i got out of undergrad college i i tried to get a job drawing the covers for pornographic books Wow, you would be great at that. And you would think, but actually <laughs> I had not I had no training for that at all at the time. Like I knew how to make like 6 by 6 foot charcoal drawings. That's not what that's that's not what the publishers of porn 
novels in 1982 needed to like take photographs of to put on the cover. But I went down, I saw the ad, I saw the job advertised in the in the back of the village voice and i went to some place like in murray hill where there was a whole bat there was a big sort of empty loft with a bunch of typewriters like set up in a row and the most burnt out guys on earth seated at the typewriters writing these books like writing porn books and the thing that always killed me about that was that they the paper was on a roller like it wasn't individual sheets of paper it was just like they had a huge roll of paper that they were typing on and so i had put together like a portfolio of these drawings of various like you know sexual scenarios showed them to the guy and the guy was like you know well i don't know but here here's here's some tear sheets, what we do is we give people assignments. Here's what the turnaround time is. And so it was basically my audition is he gave me like four sheets with descriptions of four different porn books and what the scenario was supposed to, that it was supposed to be that I was supposed to draw. And, and he was like, you know, turnaround time is a week. We pay, I think it was something like $50 a cover. And it was so little money and so much work that I never went back. But I just found the tear sheets. The one that has always stuck in my memory was lesbians around the world. And they're supposed to like depict like various lesbians from like various nationalities. It's a small That sounds like lesbians. a good assignment. I mean, these days I would be happy to draw that, but at the time it was like, it, it, it was a little, it wasn't a good match for my skill set at the time, but that's the, you know, there's a way in which I've always had a kind of fascination for pornography and less filmed, but more written and drawn. You know, one of the things I loved about talking to Tom is that Tom would say like, I, you know, he, he said to me like, I started a drawing and I would get hard and I would draw until like, if I lost my heart on, I'd, I'd get rid of the drawing. And that's a really interesting thing because there he is like literally only trying to please himself for the, for the, all the first part of when he's working and only very gradually does he, you know, come to have a, you know, it's such a it's such a massive effect on all of these other people's libidos and identifications and and possible ways of presenting themselves. And it's the same with those like burnt out guys at the at the porn factory, you know, that 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 they're like for them it's like, oh my God, I gotta like turn out another 12 feet of like lesbians around the world <laughs> and and for the people who are buying those books like a few blocks away on 42nd street it's like this is the thing that they're smuggling home to get off to you know well in a way it sounds like you had to experience not necessarily a disillusionment but an understanding of the like not hot behind the scenes because you had already experienced the not hot behind the scenes of like the art world uh, how how did you start conceptualizing in that period of like the early 90s 
what it was you were doing as an artist and how writing related to that? Well, you know, the big shift for me was in the late 80s, I started working for a nonprofit arts organization in San Francisco called New Langton Arts. And I worked as their program coordinator, which had some curatorial duties, but didn't really have a, a lot. It was more, it, it was a space that primarily showed installation. It actually had a program where we showed video art, installation, performance, and writing. The writing program was was really connected to the language poets of the Bay Area. And, and so it was a kind of hub of cultural activity. And part of the work that I was doing there is, you know, if I curated a show for them, I would you know, have to write a sort of catalog essay for it. Not like we were necessarily publishing catalogs, but but sort of writing about that work. And to me, I feel like, you know, artists are often the best writers about other artists. And they should hone that skill. It's It is healthy to be able to, you know, express what you're enthusiastic about in someone else's work. And then also the activity of organizing shows and and creating opportunities for other artists is like really essential to what I was doing. So I've always tried to say that none of that all of those pieces, all those separate streams of activity are my work. Like the physical things I make the curating that I do and the writing that I do, the teaching that I've done are all part of the same project. And that project is really about trying to create the world that wasn't the kind of uninteresting, flattened, professionalized art worlds. And so that was also another way of being able to connect with people that I thought were compelling artists. And there was, in the late 80s to early 90s, a kind of queer flowering based around New York and Chicago and Los Angeles and San Francisco. And so that scene expressed itself in a variety of different ways. It expressed itself in in writing. It expressed itself in in shows and people and visual work and in performance. And so there was a a moment there where it felt like that community was really kind of coalescing. Well, obviously, in retrospect, you can look at all of these parts that you identified, the teaching, the curating, the writing, the object making, and say, okay, these are an integrated whole. But what I am curious about is like that early part of that process where you're engaging these things. And I mean, was it always so obvious to you that this is all one thing and it's a work of art or it's part of what you do as an artist or like what was the process by which you started to knit them together within this larger understanding? It was purely by declaration. It is, it, it, it's by asserting over and over again, like I do this, but I also do this. You're seeing me do this, but here's also this thing that I do, right? And so that happened because I said it was happening. Mm-hmm. 
you know, and, and I think that there still is the struggle against people's desire to kind of file you in one location or another. It is very difficult for us to hold the idea of someone evolving or being kind of polymorphous in our head. We'd much rather be able to label them as one thing, and then we can sort of, when we re-encounter them, we can keep going back to that. I I felt like I've always tried to work against that because ultimately I think that's the what's the most fun is like getting to do all of this stuff. I mean, I think one of the reasons why artists writing criticism is so valuable is because they bring to it something that most people who write criticism don't have, which is an awareness of being the subject of criticism and understanding what's sometimes a painful disconnect between your own experience of your yourself or something that you made and the way it's being discussed or circulated. And on the other hand, I think artists understand not fully understanding something that they've made and experiencing it anew through like a really insightful critical engagement. So I think that artists do, in one hand, have a more playful, but also like a a deeper relationship to criticism when they engage in it. And Mm -hmm. one of the pieces that I think is so extraordinary that you wrote that kind of isolates that or like locates that in the complexity of it is your reflection on Kathy Acker's work and the collaboration, quote unquote, that you did. And so I just wanted to read this little section where you discuss that as a point of departure. Mm-hmm. So you said, even though queers can choose their tribe, artists can't choose their clan, the clutch of people who will see their work for what it is and value it any more than one can choose the person who's going to fall in love with you. Artistic communication is more complex than simple identification. My own convictions about the similarities and what we did was no guarantee that she would see it that way. I had reckoned on one thing that we perhaps had most in common, the highly cultivated narcissism we each used to make our work. People describe this feeling a lot, but my encounter with Kathy's work when I was at Bard via the poet Robert Kelly it immediately felt to me like those books were written to me. And I say that now and think about like, well, okay, so how many music fans hear a song and it's like, they're singing about me, you know? So, but Kathy's work both as a kind of model of production a way of making something and what it addressed was something that I internalized in such a personal way that in some ways there was always fated for there to be like a kind of uneasy relationship between us and actuality, you know, to the, to the extent that there ever would be one. Like when I think about it now in larger terms, the story about me as a kid was not so much that I was going to be an artist, but that I was going to be a writer. I did a lot of writing, and I was a big science fiction fan. I used to go to science fiction conventions, and I read all these science fiction writers and, and, and wrote. And then, and then I read William Burroughs, which was packaged at the time as science fiction and, and was 
immediately amazed by it and also confounded by it because I sort of wanted to do that, but I didn't know anything about how that writing was. And so I would, you know, start writing some like conventional sci-fi story and then, you know, couldn't go anywhere with it because it didn't go to the places that I had seen Burroughs go. And so I just was sort of like retreated and, and stopped writing for a really long time. And then when I encountered Kathy's work, it was like, this is somebody who had picked up, you know, from the Burroughs, like that I was so excited about and, and was doing this whole other thing with it that, that to me read as so queer. And so it was, it really was, I mean, some of the first times that I identified, you know, a kind of my own kind of bodily dysmorphia, you know, the way that Kathy wrote about her own body awakened a kind of longing in my consciousness for that kind of body, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that so much of what Kathy's writing was was based in reading and that i was a person who read so much and so that way of like taking in material and transmuting it and reconnecting narratives and making things making those kind of filmic leaps back and forth were things that i was just so completely drawn to and i'm i'm that that writing about kathy got its start in being asked to speak about her at the uh, memorial service at the Fales Library after her death. And so, you know, I, I did not want to give some sort of a eulogy that would ignore the complexity of who she was. Everybody who knows her knows that she was an immensely difficult person. And I also kind of wanted to ultimately honor the that prickliness of that relationship in the same way that I wanted to honor the the realities of of Tom's. Lately, I have been thinking about how multivalent and really important the different um, trajectories of collage as a mode have been in the 20th century. And thinking about that that current that you identified with Burroughs and Brian Geisen of the cut-up, calling the collage the cut-up as the queer mm-hmm. deconstruction of linearity, of binary thinking, and and like locating Kathy like coming out of that. It it's it's been something I've been thinking about a lot because somehow that's not the way that the story gets told when we even think about the influence of those particular people as being it as part of a recognition of this move toward cutting up, which in, in, entails violence and, and also a certain amount of not necessarily incoherence, but like cultivated ambiguity. Mm-hmm. Well, also, I mean, collage involves loss. Mm-hmm. Like it's a loss of the thing that you cut up to make the new thing. Mm-hmm. You know, I immediately think about. Joseph Cornell is an immensely important artist to me. Richard Foreman, Jack Smith, Ray Johnson, Jess. And then also just like 
cutting up and and collaging for scrapbooks and and for punk record covers and you know i mean in the 70s there was an entire culture of postcard collage that is invisible now like a sort of disappeared but was once like a a big way that people could enter into the art world and i think that this also very much plays into the birth of hip-hop at that same time which is you take a product of a, you know alienated culture a magazine a vinyl record a thing that has that that has been sold to you and you reconfigure it you replay it you rework it into something that is that suits your purposes but it also involves a kind of tearing down in order to get to that mm-hmm. and i think that that's and that's a thing that is not necessarily so discussed mm-hmm. at this moment mm-hmm. Well, when I think about Kathy Acker or William Burroughs, not only as artists, but as cultural figures, they feel so remote from our contemporary reality. And part of that is that there used to be space made within the art and intellectual world for transgression in its own terms as having some kind of of value or even if it mm-hmm. like moved into territory that like crossed taboos and boundaries that we're not comfortable with or whatever like that's kind of literally the point that like why they're important and i've been i just want to know how you've watched that shift or how you experienced that shift in which transgression has been so domesticated as an ideal within our our contemporary discourse mhm I I think that I think in some ways it has come with the collapse of a subculture and and in and the digital media and 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 a lot of digital culture has eroded the the notion of a subculture in part because it has enabled cultural items to go from a situation of very few people knowing about them to everyone knowing about them in potentially a matter of hours. It really was the case for a long time that you could do something in San Francisco and nobody would know about it. And the idea now that because you can sort of see video from anything, anywhere, it there isn't that sense of transgression one way or another. It is, I have to say that I think it's the thing that I've appreciated about working within the more sort of organized BDSM and, and kink scenes these days, because in a weird way, because a lot of the people who are in those scenes are, do not want to like publicize their activity there which in some ways seems like a kind of closetedness but is also about acknowledging a reality that actually intimacy also can have a value that you have to earn your right to be able to see certain kinds of things and i think maybe part of the relationship that i felt to various kinds of fandom and also to to like Kathy's writing and just to, to someone like Bob Flanagan, you know, that was that and certainly like Dennis Cooper's writing 
was that there was something about it that was initiatory, that you had to be kind of initiated into the cult. So I think what I sense as different now is that these activities are sort of taken up and put down by the art world as 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 flavors and options, not as commitments that you have to be initiated into. Right. Well, I think it's not necessarily about a shift in the art world as like a shift in the larger structures of culture, because like I've been, uh, we'll talk about this momentarily, but I've been doing a lot of work in Ray Johnson's archives. And so I was really excited to find in his library, the research book on modern primitives, the Terrence mm-hmm. Sellers book, The Correct Sadist. And, you know, my f- my, as you know, my friend Genesis Peorich, who was like a big part of like the modern primitives book that was looking at like body modification, piercing, and tattoo cultures that were very subcultural. Now there could be nothing like less uh, subcultural than like tattoos. Like if you go to the beach in Miami, like mm-hmm. more people have tattoos than don't have tattoos. And so it mm-hmm. no longer seems to me like a site around which communities coalesce in the same way that they did at like the moment of doing a book like like Modern Primitives. And I think right. that part of why I bring that up is to say, I think the the way that porn has changed is also very similar, like what's not porn now, <laughs> but is like, what is the kind of mental and emotional and aesthetic archaeology that we have to do to like look back at, at an artist like Kathy Acker or Ray Johnson vis-a-vis our like access to these to these subcultural tropes. Well, I think weirdly enough, part of it is materialistic. Like like there isn't a Ray Johnson without the US Postal Service. And with and in, and without the invention of cheap copier technology. There kind of isn't a Kathy Acker without revival movie houses and small press publishers. But I think that what those material circumstances allowed for was a privacy and a kind of slippage in reception. Like there's a something about the sort of inexactness of of a Xerox copy that has its own sexiness. The idea of having to know where an obscure place was to be able to encounter something culturally. You know, you think about that that modern primitives book and how much use so many people made of it and basically like dreaming up their own thing because they because they that was the only bits of evidence that they had. And so you had all of these different places that had that grew their own version of it and that didn't have a centralized place to compare notes. And so things could become really interestingly hybridized and and weird and powerful in and of themselves. Like that I that I think is an important piece of this is how do you make the case for the powerful experience in the place where you are, not with an eye to it being eventually taken up by some other uh, supposedly bigger or supposedly more official thing? One of the things that's really impressive to me about your writing is that 
I think that it took, there was always a kind of optimism, but I think there are places where you made a decision to double down on like imagining that like something better was coming rather than like a bleak abyss of like cultural nothingness. I mean, I think I am ultimately an optimist Mm -hmm. and, you know, and that might be an index of my privilege, but I do believe that people making meaning for each other and being excited by those meanings is delightful. And I think people still have the capacity for it. And that that's, you know, that it's a kind of, again, I, I believe, and, and, and maybe this is my own, you know, I don't know if this is my my religious belief or not, but I, you know, if there is going to be a paradise, I think you have to call it into being. You can't just like sit around and hope for it to show up. Like I've had the luxury of not having to write day in and day out. I've had the luxury of not having to express my opinions relentlessly. So when I do so, I think it's better to write about the stuff that I want other people to know about. Uh, This conversation about your own work is going to be time to come out in relationship to this Ray Johnson show. So I want to know your, your whole story with Ray Johnson. Like how did you become interested in that work? And, and like, it's really occupied a position within your pantheon over the years. Yeah. I mean, I was first aware of Ray Johnson in, I would say, like the late 70s, early 80s, when I was sort of like, you know, finishing up high school, starting at Bard, uh, lurking around the Soho art scene at that point. And again, as, as I alluded to, there was this, this intense like postcard culture at the time. And, and there were like postcards that had like images of rays on it. Like it was like, I, you know, I, I'm sure if I go back through all of my stuff, I'll probably be able to to dig one up, but you know, the, the sort of points of, of accumulation there were postcards, collage, rubber stamps, Xerox art. And, and you would sort of poke up against Ray in all of these locations. And then when I moved out to San Francisco, there was another, like an, another rubber stamp shop out there that I recently tried to track down, like what it, what it was called. But south of market, there was a place that sold rubber stamps and they, they had some Fluxus related thing because there were a few like Fluxus stamps. And there were a couple of Ray Johnson stamps out there as well. And so it was somebody who was like sort of percolating in in my head for a long time, but I had only really seen like scattered pieces of it, right? Ray famously did not show like, like, you know, and then when it got time, when we were pulling together the works for In a Different Light, Larry Rinder had uh knew a collector in the bay area who had a ray johnson archive 
who had like a, a bunch of correspondence together and and was willing to lend it to the show. And so we started looking through it and it was like amazing. And so, you know, it's so queer and touched on so many themes. Like I remember very clearly we had it laid out in a vitrine across from a bunch of Carrie Leibowitz candy ass multiples. And so, you know, we had it laid out. We were totally excited about showing it. And then maybe a week before the show opened, we got a a letter from Ray Johnson saying that he understood that there that there was that this work was going to be in the show. He did not give his permission for the work to be in the show. And I think that he asked for it to be removed. He wasn't lending anything. So, you know, it, theoretically, we could have shown it, but we of course, decided to to pull the work from the show. And actually, that was not that long before his death. And so, you know, he's somebody who then was continually sort of rattling around in my head and the story about him getting into MoMA's collection by going through the archivist rather than going through the the acquisitions committee was always like a great piece of like Bugs Bunny esque trickery and 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 such a smart you know step to the side move that I you know I had this thing that I think a lot of people have with Ray's work, which is that the more of it you see, the more compelling it is, and and no one will ever see all of it, <laughs> you know. But I'm sure that you've had this experience in the archive that it's like, you know, you'll see something and they're separated by years, and it's like, oh my god, this thing clicks into place. And that seems to me like such a more interesting model for how one would live one's life as an artist. And it's certainly the way that I experience imagery and themes in my work. That that you are continually surprised and then returned to the work through all of these different portals as you as you go through it. it you know. I, I, I've touched on that work at many points in my life. I think that it, what it does for me is the thing that I think the best minority culture does, which is that if the mainstream excludes you, if the world excludes you, go build your own. Build the one that meets your needs instead of waiting around and begging for the scraps from people who have no interest in in actually giving you any sort of power. I think the story that you told of him sending the letter of refusal is so interesting because in a way that's exactly what you love him for. Like that's what you're responding to, this kind of like mm-hmm. denial of access to this world. It's like actually yeah. like I don't care, I don't need to be validated by by this museum. But right. the other thing that you just said, almost as an aside, but that stood has resonated with me in the piece is you talk about his work being essentially like anti-iconic, 
Like it doesn't, you don't get the beautiful, more glamorous face of, of Marilyn like over and over and over the way you do in Warhol. You get like the face is obscured and it's chopped up and it doesn't reproduce well. And actually it'll Mm -hmm. be interesting to see how this work relates to social media because it's very hard to pull out of it images that like translate because what you're responding to is so much the, the activity that produces it, produced it for this particular context in which it moved. Um, Mm -hmm. I, I think that, I mean, one of his greatest strengths is in, in what you just said is he, it's a refusal of the image and, and his images are always like either deluged under or, or upended by, by a discursiveness by writing and, and maybe it's, I'm just thinking about this now, but it's like that connection with comic strips where you don't get just the drawing you get the drawing it's always got writing next to it there's always something else going on there's the the injunction to pass this on to somebody else that we live in a kind of tyranny of the image and that it is um so difficult to kind of break out of that and i think that his work because it is so fragmentary and and anti-monumental in that way is is tremendously exciting. Well, one of the things that has been so surprising to me in, in looking at a lot of work from his house that he worked on continuously from the 60s until he died in the 90s, and that hasn't been shown, is what it was like the force of realizing that like, this isn't just art with like a queer subtext, like this is a queer text. And Mm -hmm. the extent to which Ray Johnson hasn't been framed that way or understood that way primarily as a queer artist, um, I'm sure has a lot of very interesting and angering and sad stories attached to it. But when you were Mm -hmm. putting together in a different light, what were the aspects of Ray Johnson that, that, appealed to you as these different facets of queerness that you were marshalling within this exhibition? Well, I think that because it provided a model for queerness that was not redemptive, Mm -hmm. that was not um, about, uh, about, okay, now we have our, our icon, now we have our queer heroes and heroines. Now we have the people who, you know, um, uh, it's one of the reasons why, like Paul Cadmus, was not in the, um, you know, in the in in a different light, um, because the idea that you would have a kind of here's ours and they're just as good as X Y Z um, mainstream person is is really kind of um, boring ultimately, and and I think that that you're quite right to say that Ray Johnson's work is a queer text and it's a queer text that is all about um, a model of queerness that doesn't have a center and, and is all periphery. The self is Um, always displaced and elided and yeah. mm -hmm. Well, I think the other thing that is so clear to me, which is so rarely remarked upon is the level of, hostility and aggression that actually animates so much of the work. 
And it's like without this kind of dual framework of queer sexuality and like violence, you, I really think that the gestures of Ray Johnson are not intelligible. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, I think it's interesting to think of him in relationship to Adrian Piper. Um, you know, someone else whose work employs the very careful refusal of categories. Um and uh and and someone who has been rigorous about asserting their their own terms of value for what it is that they're doing. Mm-hmm. And by and and confounding the sort of easy um, uh, systems of filing that um, that exist um, within mainstream culture, and I think that both of them are are I I think you know I I wish I was as disagreeable <laughs> as they were I'm like I'm not you know well that um, is kind of yeah I, one of the funny things about observing your trajectory is that you're like so loved and lovable as opposed and but you like idolize these people who are complete assholes <laughs> yeah well what did the shags say the the rich people want what the poor people have got <laughs> <laughs> thank you for doing this i i really loved it thank you jared it's been a it's been a real treat Dialogues is produced by David Zwerner. You can find out more about the artists on this series by going to davidswerner.com slash dialogues. And if you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It really does help other people discover the show. I'm Lucas Werner. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you join us again next time. <laughs>